Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Brett Barker. Uh, Dr. Barker is the Vice President of Operations and Compliance at New Care Pharmacy. He's also a member of the Iowa Board of Pharmacy and a graduate from the University of Iowa, so go Hawkeyes. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dr. Barker. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Hey, Glad th- to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, we've known each other for a long time. You're one of the people who will spur me to kick this off, so it's an honor to have you finally on the podcast. But you know, we're doing something pretty cool because Iowa passed a new law that expands pharmacy practice in your state and looks to be kind of like a game changer for you guys out there. Can you inform the listeners what it is, what it does, and all the stuff that you've done with it? Sure, yeah. It's definitely an honor to be here. It's, I was excited when you started the podcast a while back, and so it's great to finally be on. And yeah, the, the bill that was passed is something that we've been after within our Iowa pharmacy community, some key components there. So it was great to see it pass. And actually, there are components of it that in uh, the board decided were part of our legislative priorities in 2019. Uh, November 2019 is when we had that discussion and we talked about things like point of care testing and technician immunizations, things like that, and said, you know, we really need these pieces for pandemic preparedness, having no idea um, what was just coming a couple months later. So. <laughs> You know, in hindsight, it was pretty good, pretty good forward vision there. But yeah, the pharmacy association and the board both have legislative agendas. And if you're around Iowa Pharmacy at all, you'll hear us say it's right for the patient, it's right for the profession. So generally, uh, the two agendas align pretty well. So you know, I've previously been on the board of trustees for our state association, and obviously there. Your focus is uh, advancement of the profession. Now, as a board member, I have to be laser focused on public safety and public health. So it is a different viewpoint you have to go at things at. But like I said, generally they, they align because it's best for the, the patient is generally best for the profession, too. So this particular bill had a couple things. One was collaborative practice. So we had previous collaborative practice rules on the books. But what they uh, hindered in practice was you could only do collaborative practice with established patients of the signing prescriber. So in a clinic setting, that that can work fine. In the community setting, it doesn't work at all. So, you know, we updated the collaborative practice uh, to, to allow that to function better in the community setting. Um, and I'm excited to see some of the uh, forward thinking practices that come out of that. Um, obviously, our state uh, generally does have things that are at the forefront of practice. So it'll be neat to see what comes out of that. And then the second piece uh, that was really big was test and treat. So that's something that I've been passionate about for a while. I did the certification class as a trainer of that quite a while ago. And our the collaborative practice rules I talked about before prevented us from using it in the community setting. So we as a company have trained the majority of our pharmacists already in the past. And I even taught an elective class at Drake University about test and treat before they incorporated it in the curriculum. So now, you know, looking forward to something that graduates now at most of the programs across the country are graduating with the the training for, for test and treat. And uh, there's training courses available for those that graduated before as part of the curriculum. So in the fall, I really see this as being really important. So now at the board level, you know, we're going to have to do rulemaking and expedite that as quickly as we can because, you know, this fall there are going to be people coming in with respiratory symptoms, upper respiratory, and the pharmacy can be a critical piece to, to help differentiate, you know, is this strep, is this influenza, is this COVID, is it none of the above? Refer people to, to further care uh, if, if they're in more distress and can be self-treated. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. I know other states already are doing a lot of new things with that, you know, Texas, Michigan, and others. So uh, it was really good to, to add us add us to that list because it's something that I've personally been passionate about for a while. Yeah. And I think one thing that's kind of cool is 
obviously, listeners know I'm from Ohio, you're from Iowa. We're states that are kind of similar but slightly different. But when it comes to pharmacy, we've both been landing punches and making news in the past couple of years. And it's it's kind of cool to see that and to have someone like you that I know well that can bounce ideas off of. And, you know, there's been times we don't even fully agree on it, but we at least have a civil discussion, which I think is missing in a lot of these political debates these days, whether it's pharmacy or not. But you hit on the collaborative practice thing. Can you explain the, like what it means when someone's like almost like a walk-in? Is that something like you guys have a standing order or a collaborative practice order that kind of addresses if someone presents with these symptoms, you can do this as long as they don't have X, Y, Z? Like how does that exactly work in, in, in a place like where you work, like New Carrots, like retail pharmacy chain? There's, there's a couple things, you know, the, the test and treat I talked about will come with statewide protocols that you'll follow. So that'll be pretty straightforward. You know, collaborative practice uh, without the statewide protocol, potentially you could use it for, for something test and treat. So maybe it's uh, lipid management or something like that, or you want to do an anti-coag clinic, which I know is becoming less common these days with the, yeah. with the new agents out there. But, but yeah, it, I think the sky's the limit if you have a prescriber that's willing to work with you on an innovative clinical practice to, to allow you to, to modify some drug therapy. So obviously, you know, we're not going to diagnose. That's not, that's not our purview, but uh, the collaborative practice really opens up the doors for some, some neat uh, drug therapy management services. And the one thing that's interesting, so you, you're actually also mayor of uh, Nevada, Iowa, Nevada, Iowa, however you say it. I'm not I'm not sure the exact pronunciation. So you, it's Nevada. <laughs> it's Nevada. Okay, but uh, it's one of those things that you're in more of a rural setting with a lot of your pharmacies, and I work in more of an urban setting. But we still have a lot of like almost the same, even though the different demographics are almost the same issues that patients face, whether it be restrictions to care, cost issues, travel to care, whatever it is. There's still a lot of those issues that come into place. Is this one of those things that you see helping kind of bridge that gap that we've seen? just blown up with COVID and testing and vaccine access and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of our communities, our, our pharmacists may be the only trained medical professional or the highest trained medical professional. And, you know, there, there are some gaps in some of those some of those rural areas in particular. But like you mentioned, even ur- urban areas, there, there are gaps to access to care. You know, and pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare provider. I think that's true in in every setting. You know, patients can walk in and and access a pharmacist really easily. And I think that's a really good way to get people in the door for care. You know, there are a lot of patients that don't have regular primary care. And I think a lot of us have really seen that too with our COVID vaccine efforts. When when we ask who the primary care provider is, there's a third of them that, you know, (laughs) I don't know, I don't have one. That's just kind of an estimate number, but it's a large number that, that just don't have primary care. And, you know, there, there are patients who we all see all the time that come in for, for self-treatment that want an over-the-counter, and we see warning flags and go, no, 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 you need to be evaluated because this is, this is potentially more than self-care. So um, I think it's a really good access point to the healthcare system and to get them into to care that they need. There are patients who, you know, I've had come in that, you know, that might have a language barrier and they want an over-the-counter for a cream on their arm and you look at their arm and it's clearly severely infected. I mean, those are the types of things that we can get people into us and then get them into care so that they don't have severe complications because they're delaying treatment. Yeah. And I know a lot of people think, well, this is more billing, this is more healthcare spending, but this could be things where you keep somebody out of the hospital or you keep them out of an ER, which we all know are by far and away the most expensive forms of healthcare you can have. And if you can keep someone productive at work and out of the hospital, that's like a triple win for society all around. Is that kind of the way you're looking at it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at, at the current test and treat for strep influenza and flu that that's in the bill that we're talking about, you know, we're a low cost of care setting. 
and to be able to, to get a patient in there to do the evaluation, see if they qualify for testing, do the testing, and then provide relevant treatment. I mean, it's lower cost of care than if they were to go to an urgent care and emergency room. We have this similar accessibility to a lot of those other alternative outlets, at de- at, depending on the time of day. But then also what's been shown from, from test and treat is pharmacists are really, really good at not doing inappropriate prescribing because we have to follow that protocol it's easy for us to say no i'm sorry you don't qualify for my protocol and we all know that patients when they go in they expect to leave with that prescription piece of paper Um, that's their expectation and it's really hard to say no actually you don't need it it's it's a virus (laughs) because they want they want to leave with something um so i think uh you know for a lot of reasons uh, particularly because the protocol you know is very specific it does help to prevent inappropriate prescribing too yeah, and you know we we've seen where there's going to be a shortage of any number of healthcare providers like MDs, nurses, whatever projection there is. But pharmacists, there isn't over the next so many years. And actually, there's supposedly a net negative decrease of like three percent. But we're still pumping out graduates and everything. And the one thing that that kind of points at here is we have a glut of pharmacists versus the other professions. And we've seen where some of these I don't want to call them out specifically, but like the CVS Minute Clinic, the Take Care Clinic, whatever the kind of like nurse practitioner in the pharmacy module you've seen in all these big box places. They're having a hard time staffing those. I know by me, they closed a lot of them just because they couldn't staff them and they were so limited hours. It was almost, I almost say useless, but very limited scope for how long they could stay open. But if you have a pharmacy, by law, you have to have a pharmacist there in the majority of the states and locations. And if you have them there, that's somebody who can, like you said, test and treat and get them treated appropriately, whether it be an antibiotic or not for something like that or influenza medication or not and get them out the door and then you don't have to worry about a lot of those you know do i have a nurse practitioner on on site they get also get paid a lot now i've got two people who are high wage earners at one place whereas we can really just do it with one so it's a huge cost savings that way to really expand the net of of healthcare and safety yeah no i think that's true and i think you know where we come into play are things that don't require the diagnosis so something that has has either been previously diagnosed yep. or something that you have have a have a test that can that can give you a plus or minus so you now that's where where our test and treat was really specific around strep flu and influenza or yeah strep influenza and covid because there's there's tests for that so yeah i think i think you're right i think we can definitely fill that gap and then to be a partner there you know i mean think about all all the time that, that prescribers and physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs spend around uh, therapy adjustments. I mean, we have the practitioner that's most highly trained in pharmacotherapy and treatment, uh, in a lot of cases, is sitting on the sideline of those drug therapy decisions. So I think as we have, and it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, you know, right now we don't have the supply to have a pharmacist helping with drug therapy decisions in every medical practice yeah there's just not the supply so it's so we need a little bit of a surplus we have folks that can slide into those roles so yeah it, it's a definitely an interesting time i think the healthcare system desperately needs us one of the largest drivers of of healthcare costs is inappropriate use of medications and i think we're the most qualified to fill that role and if we don't fill that role someone else is going to whether it be nursing or another profession so you know i think it's time for our profession to really work hard and step up and try to get into those roles. And that's one thing, you know, uh, some even the disagreements probably the two of us have had over, over time regarding uh, dispensing. You know, there are a lot of pharmacists that want to hold on to that yeah. d- dispensing with white knuckles. And yes, it's important. It's a critical practice, part of our economic model now. Um, and pharmacists need to remain like 
critically involved in drug dispensing. But, you know, the, the, the business model there with the PBMs, and I mean, there's a whole other fight. We could have hours-long discussion about that. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, where our clinical knowledge is desperately needed is in drug therapy management. And we, as a profession, need to realize that. And, you know, I mentioned earlier technician immunization, you know, having the pharmacist be able to evaluate more patients. Uh, particularly right now in COVID, I think most states, you know, with HHS uh, authority, and we have technicians across the country helping with the vaccine effort. And honestly, we couldn't do nearly as many vaccines for COVID as we've done as an organization without our technicians really stepping up. But that lets our pharmacists impact more patients, uh, lets us practice at a higher level when our technicians are practicing at a higher level. And so allowing them to be a, a bigger piece of the dispensing efforts is, is really important, too. Yeah, and exactly what you hit on there, too, is and kind of taking us back maybe a little personal for both me and you for some of the listeners, but you've got four kids now. I've got one, all girls. So we've, you know, we're getting gray hairs by the day over here, but, uh, yep. <laughs> but when it comes to something like strep throat, right? Like if you're one of your daughters is sick, you, it's almost safe to say that the other one's going to get it or has it or something like that. And so now you don't have to just make one appointment to get seen to possibly get it looked at or treated to make sure you might have to get like two or three. And that can get really hard even to get one appointment for like a pediatrician and then take the time off, do all that. Whereas if a pharmacy can go test for flu or strep, you can just kind of run them in there maybe after work or if you took them out of school earlier, like right away, get it done, get that moving and get that access to care before it gets too bad and not have to burden the the pediatrician or the other office, which I know for me, especially with COVID times, was really fun to try and get in there and get seen when you might have something that could be deemed infectious because everything is all of a sudden worried about being COVID, even if we know it's not. So that's just one more step that we can, again, take out of there and honestly just make everyone's life easier. Like I would much rather go to the pharmacy to get a, okay, I think it's this, it looks like it's this, yes, no. And then kind of get on my merry way when it's, you know, that's all we really need. And the other thing that you were talking about there was just getting pharmacists involved in that clinical role. Like we need that. And like, again, when you're talking about collaborative practice agreements, I had a pain management doctor the other day who called in a prescription for Lyrica generic pregabalin, uh, 75, two of them BID, because he didn't know that there was 150 milligram capsule there. And, you know, the insurance was rejecting it. I called him and he's like, yeah, I don't know what's available. Just switch it. Like he didn't even care. He's like, here's the drug. Here's what I want. You make the call, like whatever works. And that's really the way we should be utilized so that we can save people time, care, access, what have you. So I think that's what's yeah. really cool about this bill that you guys have there in Iowa. Obviously, that had to be spelled out in the collaborative practice or in the test to treat. But I think that that's what a lot of states need to kind of move to and need to do in the future that COVID really highlighted. Yeah. And another piece that that was in our bill last year in 2020. Uh, obviously, the legislative session got cut short and it didn't pass. But it's something that you know, just thinking this morning uh, about you know this this last session, it's something that I think you know we'll want to bring back to the forefront. And that was prescription adaptation for the situation you mentioned, where the pharmacist knows for sure exactly you know what the physician intended with this prescription and can make a, an adaptation of a dosage form or something like that you know how many times do we have to make a phone call because the patient can't swallow tablets and you switch it to the liquid um, those are the types of situations that there's tons of waste in the healthcare system and the physician is like i don't care <laughs> I, I want them to have this many milligrams of, of amoxicillin just figure it out so uh yeah prescription adaptation
education was part of that. And like you hit on another piece with, with test and treat that as a parent, I I've made the comment to my wife several times, like, you know, you know, I could take care of this if this bill would just pass. So <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about that because, uh, you know, having, having, how many times, you know, do your kids get sick on the weekends, you know, and yeah. you, and you need to get them, get them evaluated. I mean, just being able to, to get them tested and on the weekends easily and conveniently, I think for a lot of parents that are busy, you know, that that's huge. And you think about right now too, with the workforce issues. I mean, you mentioned my other role with the city. I mean, one of the biggest issues we face here is, is workforce and, you know, people have to take time off, you know, when their kids are sick to take them in. And so having more options where they can work and they don't have to take their precious time off. I mean, it's huge. So I think, you know, that work, it helps with parents that are busy with work-life balance. Um, There's just a lot of benefits. And I think that's why it was, it was a fairly easy lift, I guess I would say. Uh, Nothing obviously is easy to get to through a legislature, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was not a very hard argument to make. And, you know, I was, on behalf of the board of pharmacy testifying in support of the association's bill that we're talking about. And, you know, there were a lot of those uh, public health arguments that were really easy to make on and that as far as that portion of the bill. So it's definitely something we're really excited about. And it's something that now coming out of COVID shots, I'm going to have to refocus a lot of my time. I've been focused on the vaccine efforts. I'm going to have to switch gears and make sure that we're ready for our pharmacies actually to hit the ground running with these services in the fall. It's, it's really interesting. And again, I've known you for a while, but this is really why I wanted you on this with this bill. You can speak to it from as a pharmacy board member, as the basically guy who helps run a, the small town as a, as a mayor. You can speak to it as a business person. You can speak to it as a pharmacist. And then you have the parent part. So if there's like anybody in the room who can't find a way to relate to you with this, like they just are never going to relate. Like you're bye. You're never going to get them on board. So it's really kind of cool that you can speak to it on so many different levels with that. When this bill did pass, like, how did it pass? Was it unanimous? Like, was it close? Was like, what was the, what did it look like with the votes? Yeah, I mean, I don't have the exact votes in front of me, but, you know, it, it had, it had really strong support, bipartisan support through uh, the legislature. And actually, we did a big bill signing with the governor. Um, and, you know, a lot of us in the room have been advocating for pharmacy for a long time. And most of us had never been to a bill signing for a pharmacy bill with the governor. So the fact that, you know, she invited us in for one, there's a very small percentage of bills that get a public bill signing like that. So, um, which also great too. I mean, to see all of our colleagues that we haven't seen in person, we've only seen on a zoom screen and to all be in the same room and see each other again, uh, was, was just incredible. Um, and that's what we as pharmacists have been working. That's what's rewarding for me. You know, we've spent so many hours at home, even, you know, I've, been doing so much data entry at home just to try to catch up to help our pharmacies um and all that work was so that we could get back to normal and be in person and do those things again and live life and have that human connection so for a lot of reasons that bill signing was great it was great you know to highlight the profession it's great because it just shows that we have the support of the governor's office which obviously is is pretty critical if you want to have have some things move through and just the the strong bipartisan support of uh both branches of our legislature is, is really, really good. And uh, the other thing, you know, we mentioned PBM issues. <laughs> you know, I had a state senator say, well, what happened to that PBM bill this year? You know, and saying, you know, we need to circle back on that. We need to torch that. <laughs> and I'm like, as a pharmacist, you're like, it's good that there's an appetite, you know, to, to, yeah. to really make positive change that helps patients. Then they see some of the issues that, that we're uh, really fighting with. And, you know, going back to our discussion about, you know, switching the kind of the revenue and getting more clinical revenue. Um, one good analogy that a uh, hospital CEO had said to me years back that, that really fits for us too 
you know, with, with the payment models, he said, you know, we're, we're basically going on a river with a foot in two canoes and we're trying to shift over to the more quality based clinical based revenue from the fee for service canoe. And we're trying not to fall in the water in the meantime. So <laughs> yeah. that's, that's kind of where pharmacy is too. I mean, we, we all see what's happened to reimbursement on the dispensing piece. Um, we're no, we're no longer being paid for our clinical expertise through the dispensing of the product. And we have to have to figure that out in order to be sustainable in our profession. But um, so I know it's a, it's a kind of a scary time, especially for new grads trying to find a job. Uh, in our profession, it's not like, you know, when we graduated and you could about take your pick on, on yeah. where you wanted to go. So, you know, I really definitely understand some, some of those, those struggles our profession is facing, but I think we have a very bright future still. I'm still really excited about the future of the profession. That's because I know the impact pharmacists can make. And we're to the point that our policymakers realize this. I think we as a profession have shown our value during this pandemic. I think every American has seen pharmacists on the front line as healthcare providers ending this pandemic. I mean, a lot of that fell on our profession to put an end to this pandemic. Um, and we stepped up in a really big way. And I know, I know it's been stressful. I know we've all been feeling burnout and it, it's been a really challenging time for pharmacists, but at the same time, we've really proven our worth as a profession. I think that will pay dividends years down the road. Yeah, and you know the one interesting thing with that is, as we get more of these things that we can, I don't want to sound too businessy, but you have a revenue stream from, then apply our knowledge and discussion points and things like that to help educate people. That hopefully will alleviate some of the burden because you know personally, it's a lot easier for me to focus on one patient to talk to them about their symptoms, this, that, and the other, get them tested, and then get the results back than it is to try to answer the phone, send a fax, type a prescription or check a prescription while also filling a prescription and then dealing with the, maybe a drive through or someone talking to you at the counter all at the same time, which is pretty much how a lot of pharmacists are working this way when it comes to re- retailer community pharmacy. So I think that, you know, you as somebody who's in the kind of that, I don't know if you're the only person in America who's got all these hats that you have, but you're one of the few for sure can kind of see that route. And so it, it gives me hope to hear someone like you who's who's optimistic about it when some days we come home from work and I'm just like, God, that was that was a burnout. I hope I didn't make a mistake type of type of day. So I that yeah, gives no, me it, optimism. It's, it's definitely challenging. And you know, I've used the analogy that, you know, as a community pharmacist, you almost feel like you have a bungee cord attaching you to that <laughs> to that verification spot at the counter. Like every time you go try to do something else, it whips you back because yeah. someone needs you. And so, you know, this is something that goes way back to when I was a really new licensed pharmacist. Uh, the president of our company, and that's why I, I came on board with my company is super forward thinking. He's a past president of our state association and uh, really been a great mentor. But, you know, his vision for the practice is what drew me to the company. Um, And he took me along as a newly licensed pharmacist to a meeting with all these past presidents and giants in the profession. Uh, Past presidents of APHA were there, you know, and we're talking about that aspect of how do you cut that punchy cord? Um, And what came out of that was what we called at the time the new practice model project. Um, And you know, we went through pilots with the board. There was legislation passed to allow the Board of Pharmacy to authorize pilot projects. The board authorized pilot projects. Drake University did the research. They presented all over the country. And that turned into what is now technician product verification, which is probably another area that the two of us could could maybe disagree on some things. But for me, you know, being able to allow technicians to, to take on some of that product verification role that doesn't require a PharmD to ensure the product in the bottle so that I as a pharmacist can spend more time one-on-one with those patients and more doing more patient 
uh, care roles, diving in deeper to patient profiles. I mean, how many times do you do a cursory review of a profile when you really would love to dive in and get asked for lab values and do a deep dive on some of these patients to ensure the appropriateness of therapy. So I think, you know, the pharmacists, like I said before, still maintaining full oversight and control of the dispensing process, but not having to physically touch and barcode scan every bottle um, really allows pharmacists to do more clinically. And so that's another piece I, I'm excited about because, you know, we hit on the, the economic constraints and that's why our our company president and others proposed leading this initiative because we are constrained by economics. So how can we do it with the same reimbursement and allow the pharmacists to do more? Uh, so that's where the technician product verification came from. And now that's a legal community practice in our state. Yeah. And I think a lot of those perspectives come from where the pharmacist is practicing. I think a lot of it, like obviously you're in more of a higher role and I'm, I'm directly on the front lines. Not that you don't practice on the front lines from time to time, because I know you do that, but I think a lot of that just comes from kind of what you've seen and things within your state or things that you've seen. I go currently like my stores had a lot of turnover. Like we have, I think only a handful of techs who've even been there a year. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of those things where like, Oh, all right, that might not work for us too great just because of the lack of training, this, that, and the other, the knowledge, the skill base. But if you're talking, and I'm just going to use you as an example, I don't know if this is true, but if you have a technician who's been for 20 years at, you know, where you work yep. in you care of pharmacy, very different with how you interact with them, their knowledge base, their skill set. And that's just some of those things you got to see. I don't know if we want to have like credentialing or whatever, but that's just a, mm-hmm. a totally different level when you're talking with that person just because they've put in their 10,000 hours. You know, they, they are an expert at being a pharmacy technician, or at least they should be. So that's that's just a... One thing I've noticed that we obviously we've disagreed off air with some of it, but I think a lot of it just depends on where your perspective and kind of where you work. And I think that's just to be fa- to have a fair discussion on it. We have to preface that. But, hey, I do want to kind of wrap up this episode with you. And this will be interesting because, of, again, how many different kind of suits you wear with the two questions I ask everybody. So if I could if you could change one thing about pharmacy isn't law based one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Get rid of the PBMs. <laughs> I thought you might say that one. Well, maybe not get rid of. I should probably preface that. You know, uh, make it more transparent and fair. Yeah, I think that's huge, and I think we're we're seeing a lot of that. I think there's what 32 states, 31 states now that have some sort of PBM legislation in there that yeah. works to do just that. And we saw uh, Alabama and Michigan have both been on the podcast to talk about that just recently. So it's something that I think we're seeing that ball rolling. And instead of being Sisyphus, where we're trying to push up the mountain, I think it's now on the other side rolling down. So we'll see how that, how and where it lands, if you will. All right, if you could change one law in pharmacy, what would it be and why? Oh, gosh, one law. Um, that's a really good question. You know, in general, I think just some of the turf wars we have over scope of practice. So I don't – and we've talked more about, you know, standards of care. I know, you know, Idaho and other states have moved really, really hard towards standards of care. So I don't know that I have a specific law, I would say, but I think allowing – the pharmacist to practice at the top of their training and to remove some of those unnecessary uh, regulatory barriers on that so that we can do more of the drug therapy management. So yeah, I, I think it would be more of the allowing pharmacists to have, and I know it, it's it's the word that kind of caused the controversy, but more prescribing authority over previously diagnosed or testable conditions. Yeah, I think that's huge. And that kind of relates back to what we started talking with this, these bills you have there in Iowa that passed and were signed by the governor. So I I fully agree with you. I couldn't find a way. I mean, a lot of it's knowing your scope, right? So I know if I don't know 
Crohn's disease that well. I'm not going to start saying, I'm just going to switch this. You know, like that's me knowing my scope, but doctors do the same thing as well. Or physicians do the same thing. So I think a lot of that is just kind of knowing your role and then knowing when you should step up and when you shouldn't. Is that kind of the way you look at that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, you, when you talk about standards of care, it's, yeah, what, what is the, that practitioner trained to do and what would another similarly trained practitioner do in that situation? So that's kind of the summary of what, what that type of regulatory environment is versus as pharmacists, obviously we're very prescriptive and we like our exact rules. If this, then that, <laughs> which boxes us into a corner. Um, so, you know, we as a board have been trying to allow, yeah, take out some of those overly prescriptive rules and make it, you know, put more decision-making in the hands of the practitioner. Yeah. Hey, uh, where can people find you since, you know, if they, maybe they want to become mayor of a small town or they want to learn more about pharmacy or whatever, where can they find you if they want to reach out for something that we discussed on this podcast or just want to pick your brain about something? Yeah. I mean, one easy way is on Twitter. It's at Brett Barker. So that's, <laughs> that's one easy way off the top of my head. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. Um, so those are two, two easy ways you can find me. Great. Yeah. Uh, Brett's been awesome support of this podcast. I can't express that enough. We go back and forth as we've kind of alluded to about any number of topics, but you know, I think the one good thing that we both have is we can discuss these things civilly and just respect each other's opinions on it. Even if, even if we don't fully agree. And a lot of times we will hit a mutual understanding at some point. So I can't really support that enough for listeners that, you know, if you have friends who agree or disagree with you when it comes to something, we're the whole cancel culture thing, if you will, we need to start like, I don't want to say doing away with that, but like changing the way that we're addressing stuff like that. Because, you know, we've talked about things on this podcast that we slightly disagree on with some of the things, but at the same time as you're still on my podcast because I like the way you talk about things. I can't stress that enough. So one thing for you is thanks for supporting me for this podcast. It's been awesome to kind of have someone to throw these things at. And even if it's not pharmacy podcast related, we still go back and forth quite a lot. So thanks again for that, uh, Dr. Barker. No problem. No, thanks for doing the podcast. I think it's great. And I think it's definitely a good outlet to talk about some of those important pharmacy issues. Yeah. And always listeners, if you can share this, I think this is a really awesome discussion to really open kind of Pandora's box up for people, the things that they can kind of think about when it comes to pharmacy. So if you can share this, give me a five-star review, you know, that really does help. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.